morning, everyone. It's uh, 8.04 Apple time, so time to start a grand rounds. Um, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm so impressed, uh, Dr. Siganowski, that uh, I don't think I've ever seen this, this many residents come to a grand round. So can you, can all the residents stand up for a second? Please stand up, all the residents. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for what you do. And this is the first time I actually see residents sitting on the, on the third row and even the fourth row. I mean, they're all sitting in the corner back there. I don't know what's, are those special chairs or something? I have no idea. But you really have commanded a presence here. So from now on, you have to come to every Grand Rounds and have your following, you know, the flock can, can be come in into here. So thank you, everyone, for, for being here for, for, you know, just a wonderful presentation the, from one of our star uh, junior attendings. And... Uh, but you can't have wonderful faculty uh, in any division if you don't have a wonderful mentor and division chief. And I think everyone would agree that uh, Anand is, really has, has transformed uh, hospital medicine in ways that uh, no one would have thought many years ago. And we were just sort of reminiscing a few minutes ago at the, uh, at, at the breakfast uh, table that uh, uh, the, you know, we, the original hospitalist, and uh, it, we had, there were really four of us or five of us, uh, now they have like 15 hospitalists, and you know, it's really easy for them now. It used to be really hard back then, uh, when when it was it was Anand, the uh, Edsel neuritis, uh, myself, Laurie McNeil, and Nancy Law uh, at the time, and uh, and it, it was uh, it was clearly uh, not the same service that, that you have now. I mean, every uh, every practice has now handed off uh, their uh, the management of the kids while they're in the hospital in, in collaboration and cooperation with the hospital's medicine team, which is really uh, a, a remarkable uh, division here at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. And now, you know, Anand and I meet frequently uh, in my role as chair and him as division chief and, and now associate chair for academic, uh, associate, associate clinical chair. And, uh, and, and you know, when we, we first started, he was doing amazing work on the clinical side uh, but one of the things we, we talked about is how do you begin to, to build an academic powerhouse? And, and he asked that question. I said, Anand, what you have to do is recruit great faculty. And it's a challenge because, you know, it's, it's not easy to do that. And uh, you can grow them from within or you can bring them from the outside and, and you can bring them seasoned and ready to go and cooked or you can actually bring them in a, at a younger age and, and actually help them develop. And, and that's what he has done. He has done a tremendous job. I think all of you have met the people that have come uh, more recently, and and today you'll you'll see uh, the showcase for for Joanne that uh, in the grand rounds she'll present. So I'm enormously proud of of the work Anan has done with his team, his faculty, uh, and and everyone who has who has joined them. Uh, it's really uh, nothing less than remarkable. Also, uh, I I also found out today that uh, jo Dr. Siganowski is getting married in June, and and Eric, her fiance, is sitting here in the audience. So that's also very nice, and thank you. So welcome. And of course, with with a good fiance, you also need a, a mother-in-law, and, and and Joanne's mom is sitting right next to him, watching him. So that that is uh, fantastic. So, and I understand this is going to be a wonderful uh, celebration of a Polish wedding with uh, a little bit of English and a large Italian contingent. So that I promise to be a good party somewhere. And uh, so, so anyway, so without further ado, I'm going to ask Anand to come and introduce Dr. Siganowski. Anand. Thank you, Juan. That was really way more than I expected, so thank you so much. And uh, Joanne will later be giving me feedback on my introduction, so I'll try to, be, I'll try to do it justice. But the, the good thing is that with her, it's really, really easy 
to talk about her and the impact she's already had. So I think as Juan alluded to, I really do want to introduce her as a rising star here at Connecticut Children's. And her background briefly, she began her undergraduate career at Yale. Uh, she was our own UConn medical student and uh, not surprisingly won the pediatrics award during that uh, medical student stint. She left us for a while to go to CHOP to pursue her residency where she focused on intensive care and hospitalist uh, care. And one mentor, I always embarrassed Joanne by saying one of her mentors said that she was one of the top residents at CHOP in the past 10 years. So we were extremely fortunate to get her, her back here at Connecticut Children's in 2017. It's been really not very long that she's been here, but in that short time, she's already established herself as a leader in medical education. She began as a core faculty liaison for the pediatric residency program, and just recently she was appointed in 2018 as associate clerkship director to uh, help Dr. Melissa Held in working with the UConn medical students. Within the past year, she's won the McNeil Teaching Award and was runner-up for the overall faculty teaching award, placing her in the top three of all of our 170 full-time faculty. And then currently, uh, in addition to being a full-time hospitalist, she's pursuing a master's in medical education at the University of Pennsylvania. And I think some of that work has really inspired her to talk about uh, this topic today. And one thing I like to do in these introductions is describe a personal trait at the risk of embarrassment of the person. But, I, but for Joanne, uh, I would say Joanne is fearless in what she takes on and does everything with great passion and enthusiasm. And to give an example of that, when I was uh, uh, waiting for her to come to Connecticut Children's, I was trying to locate her, couldn't find her. It turns out she was riding elephants in Vietnam at the time. So it was very hard to track her down. But that was just a, a precursor, a predictor of sort of the kind of uh, faculty member she would be here. So now let's sit back and enjoy Joanne, take on a topic that all of us do in different ways in all of our uh, different spheres of uh, clinical work, uh, but I can guarantee that all of us could probably do this better. And so uh, please uh, help me in welcoming Joanne. Can everybody hear me okay? Great. So thank you, Dr. Sakan, for that very kind introduction. I was a little afraid the elephant motif would come into play. So um, I'm really excited to be here today to talk about a topic that I have a lot of passion for. And it is so great to see so many familiar faces in the crowd. So thank you all for coming. Just briefly, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. And because we've got a lot of ground to cover, we're going to get right into the objectives. So today, I'd like to talk a little bit about, obviously, the importance of feedback in the learning process. And to do that, we have to talk a little bit about the difference between feedback and evaluation. We're going to identify some common challenges and barriers um, to effective feedback, particularly in a busy clinical setting, and then offer a feedback strategy to perhaps overcome these barriers. We're going to successfully identify the roles of perception, context, and implicit bias in the feedback process, and then critically evaluate a very popular feedback strategies, but offer some, some new ones that you can try to implement instead. So I think every grand round should begin with a slide on why does this matter? Why is this important? Why are you all sitting here listening to me talking about this topic? So in the US alone, every 
child in school be handed back as many as 300 tests, assignments, or papers. Two million teenagers will await SAT scores that will determine their college verdict. About 40 million people will be looking for love online. And about 70% of those apparently believe in love at first sight. On the flip side, about 877,000 couples will file for divorce. And you could see how in that instance, a lack of feedback might be a little bit problematic. Going into the, the job force and the workforce, about 10 million people will lose their jobs this year. Some may know why, some may not. Others are going to be worried that they may be next. 500,000 entrepreneurs will open their doors for the first time, and 600,000 will close theirs for the last. And about 50 to 90 percent, wide range, yes, of people in the workforce will receive some sort of feedback or performance review during their year. So I sort of point out these topics to just show that regardless of what your field is in medicine, whether you are an outpatient or inpatient physician, whether you're a nurse, a surgeon, a case manager, a social worker, you're likely in a position where you're going to be receiving feedback, giving feedback, or more likely, both. So full disclosure, I was a history of science and history of medicine major, so I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about the history of where feedback even came from. So the term was actually coined in the 1860s during the Industrial Revolution, and it was used to describe the way in which outputs of energy are returned to their point of origin in a mechanical system. Sort of the classic feedback loop, the electronic electric feedback loop that we all know. In the 1940s, it was coined in rocket engineering as the information the system uses to make adjustments while reaching a goal. In the 1950s, Robert Wiener, Mic on. You guys hear in the back? Is it on? It's okay. Sweet. Sorry. No, that's fine. Right. Let me just turn this off. So in the 1950s, Norbert Wiener was the first person to really apply the definition of feedback to the humanities. And one of my favorite definitions was, came in the 1980s from Ram Prasad in the field of management theory where he essentially defined it as information about the gap between the actual level and some reference level, which is then used to alter the gap in some way. And then finally, in 2008, Van der Ritter and colleagues essentially did an extensive search of the general and medical literature and tried to apply this to clinical medical education and sort of came up with the definition that we're all familiar with in our setting. So they define feedback as specific information about a comparison between a trainee's observed performance and a standard, given with the intent to improve the trainee's performance. So, just to get the morning going, I'm going to have you all take out your cell phones and either log on to this website, polev.com slash joannec301, or you can text joannec301 to the number 22333. That will get you into this poll and we'll actually be able to have you participate. So, using one word or phrase, how would you describe feedback? Critical. Helpful. Teaching. Specific. Stressful. Challenging. <laughs> 
constructive. Ideally, yes. Necessary. Hit or miss. Unclear. Evaluation. And we'll actually talk about how those are very different. Scary. Hopefully that's not coming from one of the residents, but I imagine it might be. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah. Perfect. So, you know, there are some positive terms in here, but a lot of these are actually sort of anxiety-provoking, right? And so my hope is that with the remainder of this talk, we'll be able to shift away from some of these more sort of fearful words and a little bit more toward the helpful necessary. So how about feedback in medicine? Why is it so important, particularly in our field? So Jack Ende, who is known as the father of feedback in medical education, wrote that clinical skill is easier demonstrated than described. And like ballet, it's best learned in front of a mirror. Feedback is that mirror. You know, he went on to say that without feedback, mistakes go uncorrected, good performance isn't reinforced, and then clinical competence essentially is achieved by observation, so empirically. And a lot of times learners can make assumptions. There are also some less obvious consequences that we don't think about all the time. So, you know, there's essentially any time you start a new job, a new profession, you are going to have this sense of being adrift. And if you're not getting any feedback, you may start to feel that that sense of a strange environment is amplified. And what happens? People react in very human ways, right? So all of a sudden, people are attributing a lot of weight to internal and external cues inappropriately, right? So that blank stare from an attending all of a sudden means I'm, I'm doing horribly. I'm not performing well. And, you know, if you have a really short or terse comment from, from a nurse or a resident, all of a sudden that means, you know, I don't, I don't belong here. I'm out of place. And then, of course, there's the concept of too little, too late. And this is one we see all the time, right? So the absence of feedback carries the additional jeopardy of learning only at the end of a block or rotation or a week on service that you're performing subpar or substandard. So we're going to play a little game. And how many people have played the feedback game or have heard of the feedback game? One person? That, that's actually great, because this is one of my favorite games. I'm, I was hoping to sort of head into the audience with this. I don't know if this mic's going to work. So I promise you don't have to get up out of your seat, and you do not have to come on stage. You just have to interact with me for like two minutes. I'm going to ask for three volunteers really quickly. All right. So we've got Dr. Bennett in the back, Dr. Lurke in the back, and Dr. Hogan. Awesome. All right. So, Dr. Hogan, start with you. Do you want to just quickly tell everybody uh, who you are and what division you're in? Uh, I'm Alex Hogan. I'm a pediatric hospitalist. Yay! <laughs> Dr. Hogan and I also share an office, so. Um, Dr. Hogan, what's your favorite color? Blue. Blue. Awesome. So, have you ever played the feedback game? No. Excellent. So, I'm going to tell you why this game is super, super fun. And I promise he actually hasn't. I have not told him anything about this presentation. So, this is going to be really fun. So, the game's really simple. All I need you to do is think of a number between 1 and 100. Whole numbers. Don't 
no SAS, no PI, or 3.78, you know, none, none of that. Whole number between 1 and 100. So give me a second. Okay, so I've got my number. So go ahead. What's your number? 55. 55. So if you guys don't know Dr. Hogan, you should know that he is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. Okay? His, that guess right there just proves how fantastically amazing he is, right? He is a superstar. I mean, Dr. Sekhan would have talked three times as long about Dr. Hogan because he is just, that is one of the most amazing guesses I've ever, ever heard. It's not the right answer at all, but I'm going to give you one more chance because I just, that's how much I believe in you. So go ahead, give me another number. Seven. Seven. I didn't think it could get any better. <laughs> that's just, I'm so proud. I mean, do you see how much he teaches me? Come on. So we have a little motto, it's called Young Guns. This is, this is why. He's just, he's amazing. Still not the right answer. But you know what, I, I, I really believe in you. I'm gonna let you try one more time, and I want you to, this time, try really, really hard. Just give it your best. 74. <laughs> the number was 13. Oh, but, I, I, but you know what? <laughs> he knows it's my favorite number, so that was, come on. Awesome job. That was just great. Okay, I need, Another person. Dr. Orte, would you like to go next? Sure. Awesome. So, you saw how the game was played? Yep. Any confusion about the rules? It's probably one of the easiest games you're ever <laughs> Literally the easiest game you're ever going to play. Okay. So, same thing. No smart aleck answers. Number between 1 and 100. 72. Probably the worst number you could have picked. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why this is so hard, right? You have all these options, and that's literally just, I, I don't know why anyone would think of that option. Just, why don't you just go ahead and guess again? <laughs> so, 72 to 3. Not sure where that rationale was, but, um, you know, I, no, <laughs> no. I mean, you know, the hope is that all these people are here to learn, right? You know, you know that CME line that says, how are you going to incorporate this presentation into your practice? Yeah, you know what people are going to write? Not three. <laughs> Not at all. Um, that was great. We're just going to move on. That's okay. okay. <laughs> Dr. Bennett. <laughs> Are you excited to play the game? <laughs> kind of understand the rules of the game? Number between 1 and 100? Awesome. Dr. Bennett, go ahead. Why don't you give us a number? 15. You know, that's a, that's a really strong guess. I like what you did there. You know, not really in the middle, not too far to the beginning, not too far to the end. 15 is not quite right, but why don't you go ahead and take it up about 30? Go ahead. 45. Okay. 45. So, again, you know, you did a really nice job incorporating that suggestion. Um, are you okay if I give you one more? Okay. Why don't you take it down by two? See where you land. Yeah, you got it. That's exactly right. Good job. 
Alright, so we're gonna meet our players a little bit a little bit closer. So Dr. Hogan, how are you? Thank you for playing. Did you like your game? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it felt useless, right? Did it make you feel good? Kinda. Kinda. Sure. Right? Was it it wasn't helpful at all, right? So what did I do there with Dr. Hogan? Did I give him positive feedback? No. What did I give Dr. Hogan? Praise. Praise. Positive reinforcement. I did not tell him anything that was helpful, right? Dr. Alerte. <laughs> so let's give everyone a round of applause, but let's especially give Dr. Alerte a round of applause. He made a really good sport. Dr. Alerte, did you enjoy your game? <laughs> yeah, right? With, rather poke your eye out with a needle? Yeah. Right, so how did the game make you feel? Unsuccessful. So did I give Dr. Alerte any feedback? No, right? What did I give Dr. Alerte? Negative reinforcement, right? And a little bit of shaming too. He and I go way back, it's okay, I know him very well. He'll forgive me, I hope. Just a little bit. Dr. Bennett. How did you feel about your game? Did you like your game? Okay. Did you get feedback? How or why? How do you know that? Right? We kind of, I helped you get you there, right? We got there together. Okay? And so my whole point in this is because what I want everyone to take away is that feedback is when two people make a plan to make someone better, okay? So, but what about evaluation? Somebody in that word cloud at some point put that feedback as evaluation, and so I'm really glad that you actually said that because I want to take a couple of minutes to point out that they are, in fact, very theoretically different. So often, they're used interchangeably. And briefly, feedback is formative information. It's, it's meant to help a person stay on course with goal, whereas evaluation is a judgment of performance, generally over a longer period of time and in comparison to others. So just dissecting this down a little bit further, feedback presents information, okay? Evaluation presents judgment. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm naively standing here thinking that feedback is not going to be subjective in some way, right? By, sort of by default, there's, there's really no good way to tell a learner, you know, your differential diagnosis missed the most common diagnosis, without there being some form of discomfort, right? But the important thing is if you understand how the process is done, you can do it with some skill and understanding. And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about. Feedback is meant to be formative, right? It's meant to form, to shape, to mold, whereas evaluation is meant to be summative. If you want sort of a, a real-life example, think about, you know, schooling. Formatively, you have a bunch of little quizzes, you have little essays, and it's meant to sort of test the understanding during the learning process. Whereas at the end, you have your evaluation, you've got your midterm, you've got your final, right, your exams. One of my favorite, actually, ways that somebody once described this is um, formative feedback is when the chef tastes the soup, right? As they go, they make little changes, they make little adjustments, they put in the spices. And evaluation is what happens when the guests 
chest this week. Okay. So feedback is based on current performance. It's meant to be on a specific action or behavior. It's a little bit more formal. You sort of want it to be in the moment. Whereas evaluation is usually past performance. It's more global. It's sort of that more formal sit-down feedback that you think of. And then another really fun way of thinking about this is that feedback is meant to be neutral. So it uses nouns and verbs. Okay, so um, an example. You presented some important points, but the differential did not include pneumonia, which is the most likely diagnosis. Evaluation tends to use adverbs and adjectives. So your oral presentations tend to be disorganized, and you often prematurely reach a diagnosis because of them. The purpose of feedback is improvement, and again, in the moment, whereas the purpose of evaluation a lot of times is grading and comparison. So some examples on the bottom, feedback, you know, after a quick OR case or a quick patient encounter, those are good times to do in-the-moment feedback. Evaluation usually you think of as sort of the end point or end of rotation evaluation. So with that, we're going to go through a couple of guidelines on how to give feedback. So the first is that the teacher and the trainees are meant to be allies with common goals. The teacher is meant to be a coach. And at the outset, you want to set those common goals and sort of decide where are things going well and, and where are we agreeing that there's some shortcomings that we can help address. You want to set a place and a time. Ideally, the best type of feedback is feedback that is sought out, right? When someone comes up to you and says, I would love some feedback on this or that. And so I encourage all the residents in the room to really do that because that's really the best type of feedback that you will get. That said, it should never be a surprise, right? You don't ever want to take anyone by surprise because then human emotion and defense mechanisms tend to sort of creep up. You want it to be in, you know, again, it doesn't have to be this formal sit-down process, but you do want it to be somewhat private. So a nursing station, an elevator, the hallway may not be the best places. You can easily pull someone aside to the end of the hallway and say, hey, let's just chat for a couple minutes about how you think that went. Based on first-hand data, this one's really tough, right? Because unless you actually observe the learner, you're not going to be able to give them the specific examples that they deserve. Now, this happens a lot in our profession. Somebody observes the student or the resident and then they move over and hand that observation verbally over to somebody else who's meant to give the evaluation. I mean, that's fine, because sometimes that's the only way that we can do this in a busy clinical setting. But the important thing is you have to give concrete examples. So, you know, we've all sort of been in the situation where, you know, Dr. Jones said that your fund of knowledge was above average, but your assessments need some work. And that happens all the time, right? That passes for feedback all the time. Now, if, if that resident says, well, can you give me an example? Can, can you give them one? Right? Is that, is that helpful? So again, it can be done, but you have to make sure that if you're that person receiving that firsthand feedback, that you ask the person to give you examples that you can actually share with the learner. Small digestible amounts. This is not a the more the better situation. Okay? Because what happens is people get overwhelmed, or they'll overly focus on one thing and completely ignore everything else that you said. So small digestible amounts. The language that you use should be non-judgmental. Now, I think 
Personally, for me, this is one of the hardest ones because in the moment you're trying to think about how do I phrase this in a way that uses those nouns and verbs and tries to steer away from those adjectives and adverbs. How do I make the person feel that I'm not judging them as a person and that I'm judging the behavior that they did? So, for example, the differential didn't include X, Y, Z is very different and feels very different than your differential was inadequate, right? You, you get the difference between those. And as the receiver, you, you see that they make you feel very differently, even just hearing them out loud. You know, another example, um, you, I noticed that you had your back turned toward mom during family-centered rounds. Next time, try positioning yourself in a way where she feels included. It's very different than, you were really rude to that parent, right? Which one of those is more helpful? Which one of those will actually cause a change in behavior? So again, you want to get feedback on specific observations, not general performance. Talking about someone's efficiency or organizational skills, really broad and rarely ever helpful. Now, if you want to take someone and sit down with them for a few minutes and go through prioritization, like this is what you do first, this is what you do next, to help them with their organizational skills, that's okay. But what you need to be able to recognize is if that's not happening, and if they're still struggling, even though you're giving some feedback, that's when you need to escalate it up to a higher level because that needs to be more longitudinally monitored. Should deal with decisions and actions, not assumed intentions. So the antibiotic regimen didn't appropriately cover for MRSA, right? It's very different than telling someone your, your choice of antibiotics makes me feel like you don't appreciate the significance of MRSA in this patient, or the likelihood of MRSA in this patient, right? Again, you, you can offer subjective data. I'm not trying to stand here and tell everyone that you should absolutely be objective. There's no place for subjectivity. The difference is it has to be clearly stated as such. So this is where your I statements, really I as in the letter I, come in handy. Um, I noticed that you were uncomfortable talking to mom about breastfeeding. That points out to learn that this is one person's observation, right? It's just your observation. Whereas you seemed uncomfortable. All of a sudden makes it sound like they looked like a mess in front of everyone during rounds, which may or may not be the case. This may actually just be your view of how they presented, whereas other people, including the family, may have not noticed any difference. And lastly, beware the perils of praise, right? So, Dr. Hogan, are you still feeling great about your little feedback game? No. No, right? So it was maybe fun for a second in that, you know, you felt great, but again, you didn't learn anything, right? There's, there's, no, there's no usefulness to it. And so, you know, great job, and you're a superstar. It, it kind of focuses the attention on the person and almost makes, almost implies that you're judging them, not their performance, right? So how do we put this all together? So this is a Department of Pediatrics Grand Rounds. So naturally, I am going to show you how we put it all together with a DreamWorks animation.
It's a mess. You must feel horrible. You've lost everything. Your father, your tribe, your best friend. Thank you for summing that up. Why couldn't I have killed that dragon when I found him in the woods? Would have been better for everyone. Yep, the rest of us would have done it. So why didn't you? Why didn't you? I don't know. I couldn't. That's not an answer. Why is this so important to you all of a sudden? Because I want to remember what you say right now. Oh, for the love of... I, I was a coward. I was weak. I wouldn't kill a dragon. You said wouldn't that time. Okay, whatever. I wouldn't. 300 years and I'm the first Viking who wouldn't kill a dragon. First to ride one, though. So... I wouldn't kill him because he looked as frightened as I was. I looked at him, and I saw myself. I bet he's really frightened now. What are you going to do about it? Eh, probably something stupid. Good, but you've already done that. Then something crazy. That's more like it. So I love this clip, right? For all the reasons that we just talked about. They are allies, they're a team. And she's coaching him and teaching him to be self-reflective. She does it in a private space, right? And she does it on one observed behavior that is clearly modifiable as he charges off to save the day. And she focuses on decisions or outcomes, not on intentions. She makes him sort of say those, the reasons for his actions out loud. And she does so in under two minutes. Okay. So what about good job, right? Is there a place for it? I'm not going to say that there isn't. I think the, you know, frequent and casual, good job, great job, there's a place for it in, in, our, in our daily workflow. The problem is it's supportive, but it's not specific at all, right? So it doesn't actually improve any skill or performance, as we saw with... Dr. Hogan's feedback game. Bowler and Rogers actually did a great study in 2006 where they took surgery students who were learning to tie knots and they divided them into two groups. The first group got praise and compliments and the second group actually got feedback on their technique. And surprisingly, or perhaps not so, the compliment group, super satisfied, right? They, their satisfaction scores skyrocketed. The feedback group, not so happy. Their satisfaction scores weren't super great, but they had improved performance almost threefold. Okay. So I sort of just say that to, to keep in mind what our true goals are. Okay. All right, so I'm going to have you guys get your phones out one more time. And if you logged on already, then you should be good to go this time around. If you're just joining, then you can go ahead and log on to this poll or text Joanne C3. 01 to 22333. So what are some of the barriers to giving feedback? You guys can use more than one word. These are going to be a little easier to read because I'm expecting some phrases. So time, right? Number one, biggest one. Everyone agrees. Time. How do you find the time? Time. Time. Time, time, time. Yep. Right? Time. Come on, the more original. Come on. <laughs> A lot of time. 
Ambivalence. That's an interesting one. Too busy, right? Time. That's just another word for time. Come on. Negative reactions. Yeah, that's a big one, right? Location. Yeah, trying to get a protected space is difficult. Hard. Lack of confidence. Okay. We're hoping that we're going to change that a little bit the remainder of this presentation. Awkward. Sure, and some of that might stem from a lack of confidence, right? Feelings, discomfort, great. So I'm shifting gears a bit just because I, I want you to know that I respect the fact that there are barriers to giving feedback, right? And a lot of these barriers that you came up with, we can't change, right? We can't change our patient census or patient acuity. We can't necessarily change the physical space in which we have to give the feedback, but we can certainly be more mindful. So, you know, part of surmounting the barriers to giving feedback is just recognizing how important it is. But how do we do that when, you know, we face so many barriers? And so truthfully, every single one of these circles could be a grand rounds on its own, so we're just going to hone in on the bottom left, comfort of the feedback giver. But before we increase your comfort levels, I'm actually going to take a minute to make everyone a little bit uncomfortable. Because to be able to give feedback in real time and to be able to do a good job of it, we have to be able to recognize three things. And that's our perceptions, the context in which we're giving feedback, and our biases. So, how many people recognize this dress? I'm sure you've all seen it by now, right? So, show of hands, how many of you see a black and blue dress? Okay. Show of hands, how many of you see a white and gold dress? Okay, right? You're split 50-50. So, I show you the dress because I want you to be mindful that our perceptions matter. I see a black and blue dress. I do not, for the life of me, see a white and gold. I do not understand how other people do, but it's what I see. Right? And those of you who are seeing the white and gold feel the same way. So, as you know, nobody comes to work today saying, I, I'm going to be a bad teacher today. I'm going to be a bad doctor. Right? You have to assume that everyone's intentions are good. And so just remember that perceptions matter. How many of you recognize this object? It's a table, right? Yeah. Right. Thank you, one person, for raising your hand. Yeah, that's great. So this is a table, right? But what happens if you change the setting of that table? What happens if you put some linens on it? You put some dishes on it? You put some glassware and some decorations? That table is now transformed into a place where you meet with your family to celebrate a special occasion, a holiday. That now has so much meaning attached to it. How about now? Now it has a completely different meaning, right? Now it could elicit some fear, some trepidation. This could make people have really bad memories of things. How about now? To some people, this is one of the most sacred types of the same object. So the tables because I want to remind each of you of the role of context in observation and in feedback. You know, um, again, no one comes to work saying, today I'm going to react really poorly to some constructive feedback. And as long as you recognize that there might be a lot more than you're appreciating in the moment, it'll help you actually be able to, to know that you may not fully be aware of the context and maybe even probe a little deeper. And lastly, we're all human. 
right? We all carry biases, even though we'd love to say that we don't. And what sets us apart is whether or not we recognize those biases and guard against them. So, you know, there's certain groups that face barriers in advancement. We know that, whether it's because of race, of gender, of religion. There was one study that Mueller et al. did um, where they essentially noticed that between a PGY-1 and PGY-3 year in a three-year training period, emergency medicine residents widened the gap of their attainment of milestones based on gender. And it was statistically significant. They didn't know why at first. It didn't have anything to do with the gender of the person giving feedback or the feedback pairings of gender. So they did another study to see where the gender gap came from. And what they found were there were qualitative differences in the commentary that was given to males and females. A lot of it focusing on personality traits and then sort of being linked to competency. And again, this could be another grand rounds all on its own, but I'm only bringing this up because I hope it serves as a reminder both on a personal and organizational level, that there are biases. And to be able to give clear and concise feedback, we need to not link it to personality traits and to clinical competency. So remember, feedback can and should be given liberally, but to be able to provide high-quality mentoring, you want to keep in mind your perceptions, the context in which you're giving the feedback, and your biases. All right. So now we've all become a little bit more self-aware, we're going to shift gears and focus on some feedback techniques for the remainder of the presentation. So how many of you recognize this? A lot of you, right? And how many of you have used this model or currently use this model, actually, is a better question. Okay, good portion of the room, right? So my hope is after the next two minutes, you are never going to want to use this model again. Like, never, ever, never, ever. So why should you toss? The sandwich, okay? So, you know, if learners have received this sort of feedback in the past, they know that the criticism is coming. They can anticipate it after the praise. And a lot of times they'll totally ignore what praise you said, even though it's completely valid, because they know that you're about to round the corner and smack them in the face with some criticism, right? It's not great. Some people will overly focus on the criticism, and others will overly focus on the praise, and both of those are not great situations. And at any point, is the person you're giving feedback to involved in this process? They're not, right? You're telling them something good, you're telling them something bad, you're telling them something good. At what point are you asking them to self-reflect? At what point are you asking them for their feedback? So, now that I've, you know, I'm, I'm hoping nobody thinks that I've completely derailed the one feedback technique they do, but we're gonna actually go over some alternatives that you can use instead. So I did not take your sandwiches away completely. I am offering you a more delicious version of a sandwich, and I'm hoping that you'll try to use this out. So this is the Ask, Tell, Ask sandwich, and it's a really good general feedback tool to use. So how does it work? So you want to ask the learner to assess their own performance. Right off the bat, you are starting a conversation. You are making this an interactive process. You're promoting reflection. All the things that we've talked about as good feedback techniques. You're then using that information and telling them what you observed. And this is where you can use a lot of the positive and, and negative comments. And a lot of the I statements will come in handy here. I noticed. I observed. And this is my favorite part, the second ask. Because this is where you get to assess the learner's understanding. And this is also where you get to see, hey, 
like how much of this entire conversation did they just grasp? Did they actually understand what we were talking about or are we still way off the mark? You know, you can ask them, what could you do differently? Give your own suggestions, because they may not be able to come up with any right in the moment. And then the most important part, commit to monitoring the improvement together. So how do we fix this together, right? Be a team. This might not always be possible with Feedback Friday, right? And so maybe in that situation, you want to sign out that plan to the next oncoming attending. And for all the residents in the room, I encourage you guys to take onus to tell the next person who you're working with, this is what I'm working on this week. Pass it along yourself, right? Knowing that sometimes it doesn't always happen on the other end. So the benefits of this, it's learner-centered. You're actually asking the learner to participate. It's active and interactive. You're avoiding assumptions or judgments, and you're promoting reflection, right? That's a lifelong skill that we all need to have. So the intent versus impact model. This is a really good one for those really awkward encounters. Somebody said awkward, right, as a barrier to feedback. When you have a difficult encounter, when you have a slip up, when you have that awkward moment, this is a great way to demonstrate that while the intentions are good, the impact might not be so good. So say I'm a resident, I'm presenting on rounds, and I, my goal is to give the best presentation ever. And the family asks me a question, and I kind of cut them off because, again, my goal is to give the best presentation ever, right? We leave the room, and the family, you know, the, the parents, you know, I think they were a little rude. Was that my intention? No. But as a coach, you may be able to use this tool to illustrate how that impact allowed the family to make a story about you. And it wasn't necessarily the story that you intended. So this is a really good model for sort of that take aside, sit down in private, talk about something that didn't go quite so well. You want to discuss the learner's intention. And again, assume that it was good. Describe the behavior you saw. Try to be objective. You, the parent asked you a question, and you ignored them and kept going with your presentation. It's an objective of observation, right? Everyone noticed that. But reflect on the outcome of the behavior and its impact, because that way the person can internalize that and then strategize on ways to improve the next time. For people who like acronyms, this is a very similar version of the same model, EBIN. And this is also good for those small, challenging, and awkward encounters, and it might just be a little easier to remember. So expectations, right? That behavior or that task that didn't go so well, what is the expectation? How should you be performing? How should you be acting in family-centered rounds? Discuss behavior. Again, try to stay objective. Explain the impact of that behavior, and then talk about next steps. So again, you see the similarity between the two models, but for anyone who does like simple acronyms. Mitty, Mitty, Maxi. This one is great to use as a structure during a week-long service. You know, when you're on service for a week, probably not a weekend, but anytime you have a longitudinal observation of several days with the same learners or trainees. So mini is that brief feedback that we've been talking about the whole time, observing a physical exam, listening to a presentation, and it allows you to make highly concrete, useful suggestions. Now, here's the trick, because half of us give feedback, and the receiver doesn't know we're giving it, right? And so it's really, really important to preface with, I am giving you some feedback. I do this with feedback. I do this with teaching. Sometimes I want to make a hat, right? I'm teaching right now. Flip it over. I'm giving you feedback right now. Because sometimes people are so wrapped up that they don't actually know to recognize it as such. And when you're doing it more in the moment, which within the next five minutes, I'm going to try to convince you that that's the way to go, then you want to make sure that it's being recognized. 
MIDI feedback. So this is a little bit more formal, right? This is where you want to set aside a few minutes, five minutes, and deliver some feedback on some particular skills or techniques. So this is really great for our surgeons in, in the OR, you know, surgical technique feedback. Um, if somebody runs a family meeting, it's really nice to sit down and say, hey, you know, how do you think it went? Is there anything that you would have wanted to do differently next time, or what do you think could have gone better? And then again, make a plan together. And then the maxi, right? This is what everyone thinks of as that Feedback Friday. And, you know, this one's tough, right? This is where the time, 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 time that everyone kept sending in comes up. And so what I'm trying to encourage is try to skew it so that it's really top-heavy and really light on the bottom. Because we all know that this is the one that sometimes doesn't happen, right? Fridays are chaotic, rounds start late, a lot of things happen, everyone's trying to get out by the weekend. This one may not happen. But I would argue that if you've taken the time to do these two, right, right, at least you've actually given feedback as the week has gone on. And lastly, feedback on the fly. So timing and prep are, are really great. Right? For feedback. Immediacy is highly useful. But feedback specific to an encounter or, or a specific event, should, it should happen in the moment. And so three simple questions. Right? What went well? What could be better? How to improve? It can take as little as two minutes. And recognize that, again, giving this type of feedback several times a week will hopefully take, take away the pressure of that onerous feedback Friday that I'm really going to try to get everyone away from. So some takeaway points. I promise my emojis were actually quite nice. <laughs> so to me, feedback is the heart of medical education for all the reasons that we've talked about. I really want to stress that brief feedback, the mini feedback, on-the-fly feedback, should really be given frequently and liberally. You know, be a team. Focus on a specific observable behavior. And then keep in mind perception, context, and personal biases. And then lastly, there are many feedback models. This was such a brief introduction to just a few of them, and I'm happy to send anyone more information or to talk further and more in depth about any of these with anyone at any time. But practice. Pick one that suits you. Maybe after you saw the five, there's one that speaks to you, and there may be others where you're like, I would never do that. You may have to try a few. So just ending with Jack ending again the father of feedback in medical education. Some of my favorite quotes from him. The important things to remember about feedback in medical education are that one, it is necessary. Two, it is valuable. And three, after a bit of practice and planning, it's not as difficult as one might think. And I would go so far as to say that feedback is the hidden treasure of medical education. And so I hope that after this talk, I've given you some tools to help find it. I just want to thank a few people who made this presentation very possible and for their support and help with it all. And with that, we'll see if there's any questions. Thank you. As you can see, I was eight here. The, as you can see, that was fabulous. Uh, I do have uh, one question. How did you think you did? <laughs> Dr. Kalkbrenner. You're cut off. You can why don't you just tell me your question?
your mic. Dr. Kalfner, what is your question? So Dr. Kalkbrenner's question is, um, to sum it up a little bit, how do you actually give feedback in the moment when it's based on clinical reasoning? So how do you take a deficit in, in any sort of clinical reasoning and make it more concrete for the learner? And I think that's probably something that we all struggle with, right? Now, it's a little bit of a loaded question because so much of it is dissecting the parts, right? So is it a medical knowledge deficit, right? Is it purely something that know the facts. Is it they have great medical knowledge, but their anxiety doesn't allow them to perform in a situation that we work in? Family-centered rounds, there's 20 people in the room, right? So one of the ways that you can try to tease that part out is how do they do with you one-on-one? -on -one? How do they do in the room when you're running the list when it's just a few of you? All of a sudden, are they coming up with all the answers? And then the next day on rounds, are they completely flustered again? Right? That could be part of it. Is it, is it a one-time thing, or is it consistent? I would argue if it's a one-time thing, that whole context thing comes into play, right? What's going on? Because if you know that it's someone who's a high performer, a high achiever, and they're struggling today, why? What happened? If it's something that's going on, right, that, again, as a clinical attending, may not be your place to address during that week, but certainly something to, that could be escalated up, right? There might be a lot of different issues. In the moment, in particular, if it's a clinical reasoning issue, I think constantly asking the question why helps you sort of tease out those things. Because if you keep pushing and sort of offering that little step up, well, okay, you know, you're, you're telling me that you're concerned that this patient's clinical exam is worse. Your plan is the same as it was yesterday. See if they, it, where is the disconnect? Right? Sometimes it's literally the anxiety of I have to talk out loud in front of a lot of people and until you point out where the disconnect is, I'm not going to absorb it. So actually sort of teasing it apart and trying to point out why you think that there is an issue with the clinical reasoning is really helpful. I don't know if that answers your question. Dr. Boudreau. Is there a place for learners to give feedback on the feedback that they're getting? <laughs> like how do we do that? Yeah. So I would, right, I would hope that that's a conversation that you and I can have, right? And maybe you and I could have that conversation. It might not be the case with, with every pairing, right? And so I think that there's a lot of value in sitting down with your, the feedback giver and the feedback receiver and talking about it. I would encourage anyone who gives feedback to at the end say, do you have any feedback for me? First of all, open up the door, right? I do that with every feedback session. At the end, I say, what can I do better? Like, I'm, I'm a junior attending. I'm still learning, too. What could I have done better to make your week go easier? What could I have said differently to make this stick a little bit better for you? So part of it is having somebody open up the conversation. Um, as far as, you know, if you really think that that's not 
possible. Obviously, you know, there are summative evaluations, right? And so one of my hopes in giving this grand round is that I sort of hope to take this a little bit further and do a faculty development workshop series. So I think a lot of the issue, someone said, you know, lack of confidence, right? If you don't know how to give feedback, if you've never been formally taught any techniques, it's going to be nerve-wracking. And so, you know, then you're sort of waffling on both ends. And so I think, you know, development, faculty development is big. I think programmatic development of how to receive feedback is also huge, right? There's a really great book um, it's called Thanks for the Feedback, if you ever have a chance to read it. And it really focuses on how a lot of feedback success actually lies with the receiver of feedback. So I think those two arenas are things that we could definitely do um, really, you know, a little bit better here, and we could take that pretty far. Very last question. Often when dealing with parents, like the problem, So the really interesting part about Ask, Tell, Ask that I didn't get a chance to mention because it was going to send me on a really big tangent is that it actually originates from the physician-patient literature. So, right, it's, it's literally the model that we use with physician interactions, and that's actually where that technique originated from. So, great observation. Thank you again for a wonderful grand round.